This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. Tonight we're going to Bega in New South Wales, and I want to find out what is the new relationship with the forest that we could have to prevent the massive losses we saw this year in the wildfires that ripped through Yuan country. Andy and I pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people upon whose land we are broadcasting tonight. And every time I say it, I become a bit more open to what Indigenous people have to teach us about a relationship with the land that can reverse the climate crisis. Last night, I heard the Emergency Leaders for Climate Action Summit. And whereas the white people spoke about the loss of iconic species, the grief they felt for that, but also phrases like, no koalas, no tourists... The Aboriginal man, Oliver Costello, said that there were cultural connotations for him. He said, it's like a loss of identity to know those animals have gone. He said, it's as if you've been burnt. So tonight I speak to Ewan man, Dan Morgan, about how cultural cold burning restores country. He told me that hot hazard reduction just sets the land up for more fierce burning in a few years' time. Logging also invites fire, as it leaves so much flammable debris behind, and new saplings. The area behind Malakuta, for example, that, that, that forest up to Eden, is one of the most heavily logged areas in Australia, and many people I spoke to said it was a time bomb waiting to go off. Greg Mullins said the emergency leaders for climate action were humbled by the last fires. They want our government to invest in local disaster management hubs, including First Nations people whose traditional land management we need to trust now. Greg Mullins said the current firefighters have a combat mentality, but First Nations work with the forest and treat it with care. He said he and his colleagues need to stop being control freaks and to get out into country and learn how to get ahead of the game at a landscape scale. Wow, he said, this is sophisticated stuff. So you will hear tonight from the deep thinkers of Bega, Ewan Mann, Dan Morgan, local philosopher and chef Peter Hagar, and then Vivian Harris, who has invited people to chat with her over 71 weeks beneath a banner saying, Climate Action Now. And then Joe Dodds from Bega Valley Council, who's a member of the group Bushfire Survivors for Climate Action. I was really interested that people across the political spectrum were starting to say, cultural burning, we need to do more cultural burning. So that recognition, I think, is is absolute gold. Uh, And I'm really... um, encouraged by that. This is a deep dive into the ideas that will sustain us, but I hope you learn, as I did, what a new relationship with the forest might mean. Dan Morgan is speaking to us from Bega in New South Wales. Welcome, Dan. Would you tell us about Ewan Country and what you feel about it to start off with? Well, um... The Ewan Nation goes from the Shellhaven River to the Snowy River. There's um, 13 different tribes within the Ewan Nation. So it's, yeah, and I, I grew up here in Bega, Jurindjanj, Ewan. It's a beautiful area. It's some part of this land. You mentioned the mountain just across from the town of Bega. Yeah, that's right. So there's the Mumbler Mountain or Biomanga, which is a sacred mountain, and also Gulliga Mountain, which is up near Tilba. So our two sacred mountains. So Gulliga is our mother and Biomanga our law. 
He said this was also a meeting place nearby here, sacred meeting place in historic times. Yeah, that's right. So Bega is this big ceremonial area where um, different tribes would come hundreds of kilometres to do ceremony here. So it's, it's, a, it's a special place. Also, for, I'm thinking for Melbourne and Sydney listeners, they mightn't really be able to place it. So Bega is just in from the coast, south coast of New South Wales. What are the other main features of the region for you? Well, there's beautiful beaches here and beautiful forests. What do you actually do with this southeast local land area service? It sounds like you're out and about a lot. Yeah, so my uh, job role is uh, Aboriginal Community Support Officer. So I try and um, just promote uh, traditional land management and opportunities within community to uh, connect back to country and care for country and try and create uh, employment opportunities through caring for country. Do you mind telling me how you got started in this? Like who taught you what you know? Well, this has sort of like really been my first office job, really. Like I sort of always worked in the field. I left school pretty early, just did a landscape gardening apprenticeship and then worked with national parks for 18 years uh, in the field as a field officer and um, just started this role uh, about three and a half years ago. For city listeners, no one will have missed the mega fires that swept right down from Queensland to South Australia. And they've woken a lot of people up, I think, from what I'm reading and hearing from people, to the fact that we need to look after the land in a different way. And this idea of looking after the land is maybe even new for a lot of people. And I know that the areas down at Tathra, where you had done some cultural burning before they had a big fire through there, have had different results than areas where they've just done conventional hazard reduction. So would you describe that difference? What I saw it on the film. Listeners, you can see an ABC film. I'll tell you at the end. But what, what's the difference? Hazard reduction burns are based on reducing fuel loads per hectare. And so they're, they're generally quite a, quite a large area. And um, so they, 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 they measure their success of the burn on reducing surface fuel. And so what that does, it it's creates quite a hot fire. And so um, it creates a hot fire and it, therefore it, it sucks the moisture out of the soil and it changes the chemistry of the soil. And um, during my time working for National Parks and Wildlife Service, I was involved in a lot of all types of fire, so hazard reduction burns, wildfire, remote area firefighting. And uh, what I was noticing from hazard reduction burns is that, um, you know, sort of four, five to six years later, in a lot of cases there was more fuel load would come back in those areas through fire-dominant species that that would, would then come back after these fires and and there were sort of fire dominant species that that would fill in the mid-story section and then when when a wildfire would come through then it would create a ladder fuel that would then get into the canopy of the trees and create a wall of fire so the basing hazard reduction burns on reducing fuel loads per hectare but then you know five six seven years later there seems to be more fuel loads in those areas, and and so they, and so they base their burns on forest thresholds. So once they burn an area, they can't come back into that area and and burn for another, you know, sometimes minimum seven years, sometimes ten, sometimes longer. Hazard reduction burns are, are generally quite a hot fire, um, yeah. where cultural burning, cultural fire is is. It's the traditional fire regime of Australia that, that was implemented yeah. to manage country for thousands of years before colonisation. And so we break, country, we break the landscape down into different country types. Yeah. And so that, that, the, that, the country type de- depends on the, the dominant tree species that's in that area. So you've got all these different country types within the landscape. You've got full gum country, yeah. you've got mixed bark country, You've got um, coastal country, sand dune country, all these different country types. And and all those areas need a different type of fire regime for each area. And so 
it's a bit like a garden, I suppose, like yeah. a, a like a you know like a, a household garden. You've got your cottage gardens, you've got your mm-hmm. rose gardens, you've got your annuals, perennials, yeah. and and it's a bit like so. That's a bit like different country types, yeah. and so and and it's a it's sort of the same. You know, if you don't maintain your garden, it gets full of weeds and yeah. it gets overgrown, and that's what's happened to the Australian bush due to the mismanagement for the last 200 years. And so when we burn, we, we just burn a cool fire. We put in just a fire. We'll put fire into one spot and then we'll wait a while and we'll just we'll let all the insects, all the birds, all the animals and the plants smell the smoke so they know that there's fire there. And then we will just walk with the fire and it, it will basically just pick its own rate of spread. So we just walk with the fire, add a little bit here and there just to sort of, just to continue it. So it's quite a, it's a cool fire, low flame height, you know, nothing really over. Sometimes you get flare-ups, you know, but really nothing over waist height. And so what's happened now because of mismanagement of country for 200 years, we're basically trying to reset these different country types. And so the reset burn is is always the most difficult burn because it's it's hotter than what we, we want it to be. And that's just because of fuel loads and because of the mismanagement. But once we get out, do our reset burn, then we get these indicators, uh, indicator plants that come back. And so these indicator plants are different in different country types. They can be different grasses. They can be different fl- plants that are flowering. And then after we reset that country, then we get these indicator plants coming back. And then when these indicator plants then come back, they tell us when that country is ready to burn. We don't decide when country is ready to burn. Yeah. Country, those different country types tell us. And so when we finish burning, because we, we, we don't burn, burn to reduce fuel load, we leave like a, a, almost like a half-burnt sort of... There's patches of still little patches of leaves, half-burnt leaves, black charcoal, mm. and, it sort of, and then when it rains, it sort of flattens it all down and it acts as a mulch layer. Mm. And it puts good microorganisms back into the soil and good bacteria, and then we build up the soil to maintain soil moisture. And then so we can still have surface fuel loads, but if we have soil moisture, then that is how we suppress wildfire. So in, in one hazard reduction burn, there can be four, five, six different country types that need different fire regime, but we're, tr- we're treating country all the same with hazard reduction burns. So when you were at Tathra, you, you did that. I saw it on the film. When that big fire came through... That part that you'd done your very, you know, this very careful burning, how did the, how was that different than the area that it had, you know, just this old conventional hazard reduction? Yeah, well, um, that 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 area, the the wildfire actually went around that area, so that was the only area that was left that yeah. was still green in that landscape. The same, so we did a workshop up at Aladala last year where we did some burning on private property out of Aladala and um, the same thing happened there and where the fire came through, went around that property, the neighbours there seemed to think that it's that it, um, it may have saved their house and also there's been other instances up at Coffs Harbour as well. But, but I don't, like, cultural burning is not an overnight fix. It's mm-hmm. like there's been mismanage of country for 200 years. So, like, I don't want people thinking that it's an overnight fix. It's yeah. going to take a long time to get healthy country back. Well, as I was going to ask you, you know, I read something by that Stefan Jonathan and he said, look, this is a year-round job. This is, you know, like 12 months of the year you have to be doing this. And I wondered if you had a trained workforce, you know, from state and federal level, you know, like a lot of people for the different regions and different countries working year round, do you think you'd have a chance to prevent the out of control fires we saw last year or is this just too big an ask? Are we expecting too much of this? Look, I think there needs to be a mainstream program where there's mainstream funding, where we have Indigenous ranger groups all the way up and down the coast looking after each part of country. Yeah. each traditional area and then you know like 
the way we burn, it, it's quite time-consuming. It ta- you know, we don't get a lot burnt in one day because we're, we're burning for country. We're not burning for hectares. And so, so yeah, like we, if there was a, a program that was in place where there was uh, uh, ra- uh, Indigenous ranger groups that, that was managing their own traditional lands, then, then um, I think that you know, in ten years' time, we could see a massive difference. But cultural burning—it's not just about putting fire on the country. There's so much to it. You know, it's about learning to read the country again. It's it's learning about the different plants, the different medicine plants, and the different bush bush foods, and and it's learning about the animals and and the and the breeding times of the animals. And it's there's a whole so much more to just than just burning country. It's learning to, to read landscape and, and, and manage country again traditionally. Well, I sort of appreciate that you say that. I mean, I feel, um, you know, Aboriginal people have suffered the Holocaust <laughs> in the time, you know, we've, we've had um, colonisation here and now we're frightened, you know, now we're really frightened and we're asking you, but it seems a bit ridiculous that we expect you to return to normal the damage as you say that it's been done but meanwhile I'm a climate activist and I notice that there's a lot of money going into fossil fuels still 40 billion a year goes to fossil fuel subsidies and yet they're cutting back forest ranges and I haven't heard that there's any you know big move to do um, restoration of the land like you're talking about, and training people. That would take a lot of time and effort to train people, I think. You have to put money into that. If government really did have a change of heart, do you think, how would you like to see the money spent to restore the land? Yeah, look, like I said, I think, you know, I'd love to see Indigenous ranger groups where there was, um, there was training, where we based our own training package to train up, um, train up Indigenous rangers you know, uh, and I'm not speaking from a local land services employee here. I'm speaking mm. as an Aboriginal community, as, as a traditional owner. You know, we, we need to have this opportunity within the Aboriginal community. You know, we're happy to share this knowledge, but this, I guess, is our intellectual property, you know, and, yeah. and it needs to be protected. And, and we could make, you know, we've got a lot of issues within community, with uh, substance abuse and alcoholism and imprisonment and and this you know this could be a great opportunity to connect community back to country mm. back to culture and, and you know there's not only is there benefits uh, environmental benefits but there's massive so- social benefits yeah. as well respect you know i think that meaningful work that now everyone really i think do you feel there's an appetite now for this that people really are starting to say golly we need to do things differently come to you is it happening oh look there's massive interest in in community in the public you know and um it's it's hard to explain because you know we 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 can do burns quite easily on land council land which is private land but to do burns on public lands, it's just so many barriers that we need to accomplish so that we can do these these burns on, say, national within national parks or state forests or, or public lands. Thank you, Dan. Look, just the very last question. This is a climate action show, so I want to know how is global warming, global heating, you know, climate disruption affecting the land around here, and what are your thoughts about restoring a, a safe climate? There's obvious signs of, of climate change. Um, and I think um, by getting healthy country back, I think that is, is one good step forward. And, and, you know, you look at old journals of, of early explorers that come through through um, through Australia and they talk about a, uh, the landscape as being an open grassy parkland with, with a lot of, like, you know, knee-high native grasses and sedges and then, then high big high canopy and and so you know i wonder like you know is is that the missing link within the transpiration process with with why we're in drought you know because because we don't have that that ground layer where where it could be we get transpiration into the canopy from the ground layer and then from the ground from the canopy into the cloud and then so i wonder often wonder whether that's the missing link within that that cycle i'm talking to dan morgan i think he's very tired he's been out and about all all day doing this sort of work and i i i'm glad to hear that people are now keen to 
pay respect to this and to be interested in it. Listeners, you can see Dan Morgan doing that kind of cultural land management we've talked about today. I saw it on an ABC film um, from November the 14th, 2019. It was called Bushfire Crisis. So thanks, Dan. G'day, you mob. Kutcher Edwards here. I just want to send out a message to you all. To stop the spread of COVID-19, also known as the coronavirus, it is advised that you keep 1.5 metres away from each other. Follow rules on social gatherings. Wash your hands when appropriate and stay home if you're feeling sick or unwell. But most of all, keep strong, stay safe. And of course, keep listening to 3CR Community Radio to keep connected to the community. We'll get through this and hope to see you real soon. Bye. The Eden Monaro by-election in southern New South Wales brought a lot of politicians to Bega, but I wanted to know what the local climate activists were thinking. I was told, go to Cafe Evolve. It's the centre of the resistance and talk to Peter Hagar. So here we are. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Show. I'm really glad you're speaking to us from your cafe. Let's start with the global climate crisis. You know, the global, the big picture. What, what awakened you to it? Probably in the early, early part of the century, you know, when, when, when all that sort of information was becoming available and the Howard government wasn't doing anything in response. I sort of got active in green politics was because of, because of climate change and, and, in, and the seeming inability of, of mainstream parties to respond. I guess also growing up in sort of a rural area and then in the southern Monero, like the, the loss of winter rainfall over, over the last, over my lifetime has been quite noticeable. Yeah, so, so winter, so annual rainfall hasn't dropped as, as much as, as winter rainfall has dropped. So, so yeah, the climate is, you, you can see you can see the climate change. In your region, the mega fires have given a lot of people. I think you said to me an existential shock, really, and a lot of them are just dealing with the physical shock of getting through this winter before they can rebuild and reeling from what happened to them. Yeah. That existential shock can turn to despair. You know, it's uh, and and for city people, some people were there on holidays, but I've spoken to lots of young people, and the thing that hit them most about the megafires, the length and breadth of the Great Dividing Range, this huge geography, they realised that millions of animals and whole ecosystems had disappeared, just been destroyed. So how, I'm thinking about this existential shock, it does turn to despair and sort of passivity, and now we've had COVID on top of that, and I wonder where is the, you know, the struggle for you, you know, to keep, not to keep positive necessarily, but to to be practical, to, to do the right thing, not to just collapse. Yeah. Oh, at, at the basis of an existential crisis, you decide to keep existing, I guess. So and when, when you make that decision to keep existing, at some level you have to sign up for... You either, you either, you either have to sign up for an ideology that, that gives you a reason to exist or, or you have to look for, look for ways through. And, and I'm not into ideologies so much. So, so for me, the results of the by-election down here, which were sort of very non-committal, like, you know, Greens vote dropped, Independence vote went up, the two-party preferred vote, the major parties went down, seems to be a lot of mixed messages out of it. I, I think the existential crisis runs so deep and it's so difficult to deal with because this, the structures we've got in place are being challenged by, by the crisis itself. We can't change the politics until we change our ontology. We can't change the politics until we change our worldview. And that's what we're being called upon to do. So it's really difficult. Hi there, 3CR listeners. This is Shane Howard, the Gowana fella. These are strange and tough times, and a lot of people are doing it really hard. But they will pass. Be kind to yourself and others. Buy local, and like 3CR, support local businesses and local artists. Don't be afraid to reach out for help if you need it. And don't hold back giving it if you can. Thanks to 3CR for being their collective voice. I noticed this. It was written up on a blackboard. When our worldview is no longer compatible with our knowledge of the world, 
isn't it wiser to alter our worldview rather than altering the facts? So I asked Peter what this meant to him. In a time when your worldview no longer fits to the facts, it's time to change your worldview. You can't change the facts to suit the worldview. And unfortunately, both major political parties and existing structures are designed around a, a worldview that just no longer suits, that just no longer fits with, with what we know, with what the, what the science is telling us about climate change. So it's time to change our worldview. And that will happen because it has to happen. It's a matter of how, how easily we make that happen. Well, if that helps. Yeah, it does. I'd like to know what is your worldview. Well, like, uh, I presume it's an evolving thing. Your cafe is called Cafe Evolve and we're all evolving. But what's your worldview right now? Like, My, my worldview is, is to try and think um, post-anthropocentrically, if I can put it that way, outside the human, um, which, is, which is what the which is what the climate extinction crisis is calling us to do. The beauty for, for a place like this is, is our the possible connections to, to First Nation cultures, uh, First Nation beliefs, which are exactly that, you know, that they're always embedded within a system. They're not, they're not separate to it. Um, and what the science is telling us is that we're embedded in a system. We're not separate to it. And that's, that's, that's a huge ontological shift that we have to make before we can change the politics. During the Eden Monaro by-election, according to the Saturday paper, the Liberal candidate wanted far more hazard reduction, and this was echoed by many people who believed what she said. But she would not talk about reducing carbon emissions as the root cause of the hazards. I asked Peter how to get away from the poverty of ideas around climate action as we see it being played out in Parliament. The election campaign and, and, and the response to the fires, traditional response which came from the Liberal candidate, which is that nature is separate to society and nature is something that we need to tame, which is part of a dying worldview, part of a worldview that no longer fit for purpose. I think there's question marks over whether even representative democracy is fit for purpose because it's too, too removed from place and it's too removed from community. Um, I think democracy needs to be more deliberative. It needs to be more connected to place and to problems in, in community and on the ground so that there's a chance for the non-human to be represented. That can't happen, or that doesn't tend to happen in representative democracy. There's just this... There's this idea that, that we're just um, just different different interest groups um, pushing their point of view when when the climate extinction crisis is telling us that there aren't different interest groups that we're, that we're all on this one planet we're all reliant on this one same planetary system the separation is a dying mythology grassroots um, and and local democracy and um, citizens forums and stuff like that are an opportunity for people to to, to be involved in decision making. Not just and and that and, and a recognition that real democracy isn't voting. Real democracy is 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 knowing what you what you're discussing and 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 discussing ideas and sharing ideas and sharing knowledge and doing that in place and doing that with with relationship to the place where you are and from that a relationship to the the planet as a whole. I asked Peter Hagar where his reading was leading his thinking. He told me about an Australian philosopher called Val Plumwood. And later he sent me this quote from her book, Feminism and the Mastery of Nature. She said, When four tectonic plates of liberation theory, those concerned with oppression of gender, race, class and nature, finally come together, the resulting tremors could shake the conceptual structure of oppression to their foundations. This is pretty hard to take in over the air, but the tectonic plates she was talking about are gender, race, class and nature. So I asked Peter about that. There's, there's a, a new sort of worldview of, of pluralism, of, of, um, of, of an acceptance of difference, um, which is deeply embedded in evolutionary selection. I mean, that's, that's, that's what Darwinian selection leads to. It leads to pluralism. It leads to, leads to difference. And, and so much of what we're doing, um, so much of the progressive causes these days are about celebrating and, and encouraging pluralism and diversity. And all we're doing is, so if you're, if you're, if you're in the inner city and you're supporting, you know, trans rights or gay rights, then you're supporting pluralism. And pluralism is, is what the, the new world view is calling for. What the Anthropocene is, is 
is, is a fight against pluralism. So if you're fighting for pluralism, you're fighting to save the planet. It is all linked. When, when you listen to what we might call the conservative side of politics, they're always pushing back against those same things. They're always pushing back against plurality and diversity. I asked Peter how people locally were coping after the horrors of the bushfires and now being locked down for the COVID pandemic. It's difficult to know it this year, like um, post the fires and post COVID. um, I mean, the real issue with COVID is it it stops community, you know, it stops community um, gatherings. It stops a lot of direct activism, which is quite frightening. The the fires have certainly polarised people and I think people are just still, people are still in shock and going into shutdown. Like the people, there are people still living in tents. There are people, you know, still coming to terms with, you know, their, their places being cleaned and bulldozed. And so, yeah, it's still too early to tell here and um, it'll take some time to recover. But we've had a lot of rain this week, which is good. Really lovely to talk to you, Peter. And listeners, you can hear the sounds of the kitchen in the background. So I think Peter's getting ready for the lunchtime rush. We stayed open through the fires apart from New Year's Day and we stayed open through COVID to take away. Um, yeah, yeah and, and that's what we do. Thanks, Thanks Vivian. Our next guest is Vivian Harris, who I met in Bega, outside the council chambers in a garden. There's a little park and the library's there. And she has been uh, protesting or making herself public with a climate action sign, a big climate action sign with a little picture. I thought it was a dinosaur, but it was by her granddaughter. So that decorated her poster and, and made her look very friendly too. And But she's also been protesting against the local Member of Parliament's office for 71 weeks, I think. And that gave her a chance to meet people and just to make a presence. And I thought, well, this is this will be interesting to know what her experience is. So welcome, Vivian, to the Beyond Zero Emissions show. Look, I want to know how you got started. What awoke you to climate change and the urgency of it? Well, I've been, you know, paying attention to climate change for quite a few years and working quite hard to decrease my um, own personal um, carbon emissions. But the 2018 um, IPCC report came out and I realised then that, you know, I had had a general feeling that we were getting better, but the IPCC report, CC report just said, you know, we had 12 years and to get it to me in order to try and stay under 1.5 degrees. And it just really threw me, you know, that the fact that such a short amount of time and my granddaughter was only going to be 17 and I just moved to Bega and I really didn't know anybody. I did a quick uh, Google search to find, see if there was any climate groups in the area, but I didn't look up clean energy for eternity, so I didn't find them. And about that time, uh, Greta started um, her solitary stri- uh, strikes, climate strikes, and I thought, you yeah, know, maybe I could do that. And then I thought, oh, no, that's too scary. So anyway, it did, it did take quite a few months of of watching Greta and then watching uh, Carolyn Danaher start doing it down in Geelong. And then I thought, well, actually not knowing anyone in Bega is actually a good thing because, you know, I'm not going to be embarrassed by having people I know walk past and, and go, what's she doing something so abnormal for? And I also thought, well, you know, if Greta at 15 can do this, surely I can do this. Um, when I'm 52. But I don't care about being popular. I care about climate justice and a living planet. And the very first day I was just petrified. I felt sick. I was scared people were going to yell at me. I was scared the police were going to be called. Mm. Um, but, <laughs> but anyway, I because I, I didn't have any, you know, template or anything to go for. I just copied Greta and I went and sat in front of um, Mike Kelly, our federal MP's office for the six hours between uh, nine and three. And I just sat there with my my lunch and my cup of coffee and my sign and just um, talked to anyone who wanted to talk to me. Well, you and I know that climate change is not going away, but people, when I was down at Bega, people were t- still talking as if those mega bushfires that would have impressed the pants off anyone. They're so much out of out of the precedent, historical precedents we've had. But they were talking about them as if, as if they were just not something new and that we just need to do more hazard reduction. And I wonder, what do people say to you when you're sitting there with this climate action, you're really out there with that 
big sign that people are trying to deny in their inner mind because it's very uncomfortable to believe that we must do climate action. But what do people say to you? Um, well, you originally it was mostly um, older women just saying to me, um, thank you for sitting for doing this because I thought I was the only person who cared about this. But things have actually progressed a bit since that, that time. You know, before the fires, I was getting a lot of people coming and just wanting to talk about how the sense of dread they felt and, and what more could they be doing. And we just used to, I used to just, we just, just chat and, we, you know, they, they eventually work out for themselves what, what they can do more because they have special interests and, and, and things that they're good at and you, and you just encourage them to, that's where they should keep going. Um, since the fires, it's, there's, well, we've not had that much time since it's between the fires and COVID hitting us because two-thirds of our shire burnt during the fires and um, we had you know, days of not being able to see the sun and of smoke that was, you know, equivalent to smoking a packet of cigarettes a day and it's it's changed the conversations a little bit but generally the people who are talking to me are the people who are already on board with climate change you know and the fires have just made it worse for them you know the sense of running out of time and what can we do more than we're already doing um it's interesting because it's really hard to see how anyone could have lived through those last summer and still refuse to see climate change. But they're obviously judging from our by-election where the a um, where Labor, the Labor member, the Labor candidate who does accept it's a climate emergency, only narrowly beat the climate change denying uh, Liberal candidate. So it's obvious that it's still not the biggest issue in people's minds. And I, I just find that incredible and really hard to believe. Um, but I think what happens is that it's too scary. It's just too scary to mm -hmm. contemplate that this is not just an abnormal event, that this is how the future is going to be, you know, almost continuously in the future. And so they just go for easy answers like, we just needed to do more hazard reduction or it's all the Greenies' fault or it's... You know, people seem to have just grabbed simple answers rather than in order to avoid facing the reality that this is only yeah. the beginning. Well, I didn't really know what hazard reduction actually meant because people said that to me, all of those things you've just said. And I noticed how, you know, a by-election just polarises people. You put on badges, you hand out leaflets from one team or the other and you might as well be at a football match. It was irrelevant. You know, climate action, a big thing like that. It can't be solved, I don't think, by party politics. Or well, that's my impression very strongly there. But I later talked to Dan Morgan, who told me about cultural burning and uh, all the year round, you know, around the year, just nibbling away at restoring forests to a sort of uh, way that you can live with them. And not they won't be, even despite drying out from climate, there'll be uh, a different way, a different relationship to the forests. But it wouldn't include logging, which leaves, he said, well, the logging leaves far more debris than anything else. What creates the hazard is all this stuff left over when you've cut down trees. I thought, oh, cut down trees, you take the whole thing away. No, they leave a whole lot of the canopy and stuff just lying around, and that then burns, or little saplings come up, and they burn. So he explained that to me. And I wondered if... A way through to this, uh, you know, you've been protesting it so admirable, so long. Interesting thing would uh, for doing a citizens' assembly for down here would be to look at the forests because you know seventy percent of our shire is um, is forested, and the forests are actually our um, adani, our coal mines for us. You know, instead of um, using them as a carbon sink, you know, we're busy cutting them down and burning them as well. So it would be really useful because people it's a really emotive issue in this area uh, logging you know and people will take hard positions on each side and i do think that you know if they could listen if we had a representative group of people actually listen to what the science is telling us 
that logging actually makes the fires worse, which is um, what David Lindemere, a uh, ANU scientist who's been studying our south coast forests for 20 years, has been saying. Every time we log, we leave the debris. We have a whole lot of saplings growing up at the same time. The soil dries out. It makes it all drier. We're at one of the really heavily logged area, and that is probably one of the things that actually made the fires worse for us. If people could actually listen to what the science is actually saying. I think it's such a serious subject that we've been almost frivolous about this, you know, and, and the people who avoid you in the park who don't want to talk about climate change, they can do that and just maintain their delusions. One of the last times I've done it, you know, I had a farmer come and sit down with me and I didn't even know he was a farmer, but, you know, I until we were quite deep in the conversation, but he was talking about farming and I was saying how important regenerative agriculture is going to be for as a climate solution. So when I found out he was a farmer, I thought, thank goodness, I had actually been really positive. Everyone can be a climate activist. You know, I really am a very naturally shy, introverted person. But every time I stop and think, okay, do I, do I make this speech? Oh, it's really scary. I'm really scared of doing the public speaking. And then I think about my granddaughter and I think about the world she's going to live in. I think about the fact that she's probably not going to live as long as I'm going to live. And I just get up and I make that speech. But I've learned that you are never too small to make a difference. And if a few children can get headlines all over the world just by not going to school, then imagine what we could all do together if we really wanted to. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years we've been using direct action, citizen science, and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. I didn't even arrange this interview, but Jo Dodds just appeared and so she's very graciously agreed to sit down with me in a bookshop and talk about what's been happening. And you can imagine, listeners, Jo Dodds, the person who said to Malcolm Turnbull, this is the time to talk about climate change, after Tathra was really severely burned about 18 months, two years ago. So welcome, Jo. We've got now COVID recovery. There's a lot of money going to be spent and I'm hoping it'll be spent in the right path, you know, not on more coal and gas which it looks like at the moment to me that they are likely, you know, the Trojan horse of COVID under the guise of that they will be spending there, but they could be spending on so much restoration. Is that where you'd like to see money spent in this region, for example? Oh, look, every region. Um, we, if we don't start turning this around and looking after the environment around us, we will lose it. We, we just lost 20% of the forests uh, of eastern Australia, I think it was. That's an enormous hit to... The, I think, if not the biggest, one of the biggest forest areas in the world. So people were really worried about the fires when they were in the Amazon, and so we should have been worried, but the fires that happened here were, I think, the numbers like 100 times, immensely bigger um, impact than the fires in the Amazon. So um, the, the impact of that on wildlife, the number of species which are moving from... Um, you know, being being rarer and rarer and getting closer and closer to endangered and threatened and then becoming extinct is, you know, it's a, it's an absolute ecological disaster. And I, I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone in feeling extraordinary sorrow and guilt as a human being that my race is causing the loss of these... Plants and animals, the, the creation, uh, you know, the, the, the marvels of natural world, we're destroying them one after the other. So I, it just seems to me that is our responsibility to, to turn that around, not to lose the miracles of the natural world, but to value and protect them. So, yeah. During the um, 
Eden Monaro by-election, I did speak to a lot of people and really a lot were saying to me, hazard reduction. What do you think about this fight over the forest? Do you think we're getting into another kind of climate wars over forestry or land management? You know, different opinions. People seem to be polarising quite rapidly on that. I think it's, it's, yes, there's the potential for another war. It's very much um, around the old way of doing things, which, and by old, I don't mean the old, old traditional way, I mean the recent old way of doing things, which is to go into a forest pretty well clear fell, and you can see that in the hills around Eden, um, just a, a short drive from here. Um, and then what happens afterwards is the regrowth is dense. It's all the same age, so it, it tends to be all the same height. Um, and density and that doesn't get managed in the way that it needs to be to make it safe from bushfire. So I'm not surprised at all that those fires came across the border from Victoria and ripped through um, the southern part of the state because of the Shire because of the, the regrowth which I'd been looking at for the last few years going that is a time bomb. So forestry has again the moment just like renewables do now to turn and change their practices and become something that produces things of worth and preserves things of immense value to us. The forests in their... their the, the, this notion that the forests um, were in their natural state and we've changed them is also contentious because anyone who's read Dark Emu or spoken to Indigenous people who um, understand cultural burning practices We've, we've, the, the forests here have been managed by Indigenous people for millennia and have developed into the ecosystems they were when we, white man, came as a result of management. And what's happened, ironically, is that a lot of the management stopped. So the forests have begun to change and some of those changes have made the forests more um, liable to bushfire because they're not being managed. And I think the... the the thing we're going to have to come to terms with is forestry needs a lot of a lot of resources, more resources than it has, and we need to reinstate the national parks staff. And we lost a lot of wisdom and experience when we lost a lot of jobs from national parks and from forestry. We need more people on the ground to do the sort of cool burning, to learn the traditional practices and to get out into the areas that have been neglected for a very long time and actually start doing those practices again because that's what will bring the forests back to a much safer state. So um, we need to stop that clear felling and we need to start managing forests correctly and then we can start perhaps timber harvesting in ways that are less destructive and more productive and we can we can put high value into our timber um, instead of this crazy wood chipping which is all subsidised by you taxpayers out there because it's not actually financially viable. Well, you're the co-chair of New South Wales Roundtable on um, emergency leaders for climate action and I think I saw you on one of the webinars while we were all locked. Greg Mullins spoke up in one of those things and he sounded very humbled by the last mega fire. He said we've never seen anything like that. I've been to, he said he'd been to California where they had these mega fires. Even that, this fire makes everything else just seem ordinary and so he was rather humbled by the Aboriginal way of doing things. Do you think these emergency leaders are going to get traction in the mainstream culture and with the government to put those resources and put the money into training people in those more subtle pro, uh, processes. It sounds like a lot more nuance to each region, doesn't it, That what you're talking about? Well, there, there seems to have been a big um, sudden turnaround towards cultural burning. And I think I, I was really interested that people across the political spectrum were starting to say, cultural burning, we need to do more cultural burning. So that recognition, I think, is is absolute gold uh, and I'm really um, encouraged by that because we need to recognise that that deep old wisdom that um, original land uh, management people were, were practising. So that's a way forward that also respects those people with the wisdom and includes Indigenous people and communities in the way forward, which is another thing we really have to... You know, we've got to get our communities working together and not divided like what, like we currently work. So um, I think that's really positive. Um, and it's also a way to push back against this notion of we've got to burn the bush before it burns you, which 
it's as long as we're talking about cultural burning, yes, there's some there's some value in that. If we're just talking about clearing bushland because we're afraid of it, um, that is not the way forward. That just further dehydrates the landscape and and means less rain and means higher risk in the next season. So that that's a kind of um, if we, if we start down that path of more clearing, we end up on one of those little... We're on a death spiral, basically, and we can forget agriculture and we can forget fire safety. We'll just all be living in a great big desert going, there's nothing left to burn. Great. So, um, yeah, I think there's hope, uh, but we, we we really do need to get behind the, the advice we're getting from the experts, and this is where your listeners can come in. And, um, and be part of that conversation and back people like Greg Mullins and his team at Envi- um, Emergency Leaders for Climate Action because they're, they've got the wisdom. They know what needs to be done. They're still being um, ignored by some of the political leaders at the moment uh, and we need to get them in front of Scott Morrison and get them in front of Gladys Berejiklian and have them taken seriously because their warnings, they started before the Black Summer they told us exactly what was coming, and then it came. And uh, you know, the fact that they weren't um, given a hearing before that, we could have saved a lot of lives and and you know homes if we'd listened. But what's your feeling about the community response? Is it bringing out the best in people, or is it just leaving people flattened? Yeah, both. <laughs> of course, <laughs> humans are complex. So, look, it 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 is such a massive thing to have happened even without COVID on top the bushfires the fact they went for so long I've got friends who were evacuated six seven times over those couple of months and the the disruption to one's sense of safety um that our you know we we all like to think of our home as the safe place we retreat to but when you're told repeatedly that your home is now an unsafe place run away from your home now it's not safe it's a really difficult message to then come back to your home and go, well, now what? What Do I unpack? Do I stay packed till the next event or even the next fire season? Like, I wonder, and where do I go? What, what do I do with all my precious things? Um, and these questions are with me all year round now because I've had a, you know, the Tartra fire and, and then this season of fire. And I look around my house and just go, I wonder what, what that will look like, that sideboard will look like when it's burning. Um, this stuff can stay with you forever. So um, we're going to have to really hold these communities gently for a long time while they work their way through it. And, and every community and every person is going to deal with it differently and in different time frames. So, yeah, it's going to be a long road. I think maybe you're wanting to pass the baton to the people not getting burned out practically every couple of years, you know, uh, people who are in the cities. So tell the climate message to them. What would you like city people to step up with? What sort of climate action is the most valuable? And, and I'm, I'm from Melbourne originally, so I'm originally a city person. So I know, I know who I'm talking to here, right? The, the biggest message I want to get out, the first message is that this disaster, climate change and things like bushfire, is, is currently being felt by people in rural and regional Australia, but it's just a quirk of luck that it hasn't hit cities in terms of fire. My, my initial message to people in the city, and I'm having great trouble getting people to take this seriously, but it is that it could be the next bushfire season that sees ma- major fires hit the outskirts of your cities. At least in the country here, we've got, you know, my place, we've got fire hoses and dedicated water and, and dedicated pumps for the water and we've, we actually produce our own electricity at my house with the solar so it doesn't matter if the grid goes down we're, and we've got a road that we can get out in either direction and a lagoon we can get to and a plan and, and the neighbours all know it and we all know it and we're all watching like meerkats if the, you know, we've got the apps on our phone. We're ready but... You know, I go down to Melbourne and I see my family there and they live in Eltham and there's trees, you know, with the crowns touching that run all the way, you know, in halfway into the city if you follow along the Yarra. And if a fire starts there, you've, you're not evacuating like my street where there's six families. You're evacuating 60,000 people on some narrow roads and they, none of those people have a plan. 
Yeah, well, this is the key word, the plan. We're now, Melbourne people now are suffering the lockdown and, you know, very frightening. The Premier called it like a wildfire. You know, these spot fires, this is a bit like it's escaped into a wildfire. COVID response, and we've seen massive government response. Thank you very much. Well, very grateful to you, Joe. Joe Dodds is, um, well, a great community leader down here in Vega, Tathra area, and um, I was just so pleased she cycled past me. I was having a cup of tea and there she cycled past so I jumped out and she said yes I'll speak to you so listeners we're very lucky to catch her thank you Joe is there any last words I've left out I, I you know I know I, I thank you so much for pulling me aside and the opportunity to have a chat again and yeah anytime Vivian I really appreciate the work that you do in this space too because and tell the audience that there is a lot going on because I've seen you on all these webinars in the lockdown but I've never been so busy <laughs> and, and being able to do it in my pyjamas is a real advantage because I'm so tired. <laughs> okay, on that note, we'll say goodbye. Thank you, Joe. This has been the Beyond Zero Emissions community show from Bega, New South Wales, and it's about a new relationship with the forest. Thanks to our guests, Dan Morgan, Peter Hagar, Vivian Harris and Joe Dodds. Thanks also to Harriet Swift, a famous forest campaigner down there, who I consulted. The team tonight has been Andy Britt on podcast, Michaela Stubbs at 3CR, and the interviewers were by me, Vivian Langford. Here now is an announcement about a payment from the Victorian government during the coronavirus. If you get tested for coronavirus, COVID-19, you need to stay home while you wait for your results. If you don't have any leave available from your workplace, the Victorian Government is providing a $300 payment. For more information, call the Coronavirus COVID-19 hotline 1-800-675-398. A 3CR supporter. Action this week. Please take action to protect the Pilliga Forest. After all we've heard tonight about bushfires, how insane would it be to build gas wells throughout the Pilliga forest? Gas is a fossil fuel and the massive resource there will heat up the biosphere. There's an independent planning commission in session now and they will accept submissions right up until August the 10th. So you have time to write a very short letter, just a few lines, but just say you object to a new gas field being opened up in the Pilliga. It's at Narrabri. If the Commission says yes to Santos, the gas company, we will get high emissions and potentially enormous damage to the Great Artesian Basin water. If you ask them to say no, you will be supporting the switch to renewables and you will be boosting other industries opening up in North West New South Wales. So just a short letter will do. And the form will be linked to this podcast. Just go to 3CR, Beyond Zero Emissions, and look for tonight's podcast and you will find the link. If you've got a pen handy, this is the link. (coughs) www.ipcn.newsouthwales.gov.au www.ipcn.nsw.gov.au gov.au and then forward slash have your say. So this is for you to write a short letter. If they get them from Melbourne, imagine the feeling that there they are with people all around the country, all around Australia, knowing how bad this will be. Just send them a short letter. Please do it before August the 10th. And so, dear listeners, good night and good luck. Take us out. Here's a song by Montaigne. Ready to go. I, I guess I'm frustrated Thinking about all the places I should have been by now And I'm endlessly waiting Feel like the barrel of dynamite waiting for flame to come round 